Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is a wonderful day to catch up with Brian. You should really be in the stock market, Belsky, <laughs> because as everybody was slice, uh, slicing, slitting their wrists, the world's going to end X number of months ago. You were going, uh, maybe not. Take us back to your conviction of three or six months ago that these corporations would continue to generate free cash flow. What was the belief then? Well, good morning, Tom. I think, you know, at the third week of January, you had such binary negativity yes. with respect to contagion, contagion, and people were making these claims with ex- absolutely no analytical substance. And what we've seen is that the markets have come back. And I think as of late, uh, now we have the situation on a very near-term basis where you have things like utilities and telecom and REITs hitting new highs, while the stock market in America, at least, is hitting new highs, and something's got to give there, Tom. So I think at the end of the day, we may see a little bit of a reprieve as we see rotation. But, you know, again, if you take a look at, at a three- to five-year period or even shorter-term, 12 to 18 months, the stock market's heading higher. Okay. I use as a proxy toothpaste because we all need it. We all use it. And the Colgate PE is 26 or 25. Who's keeping track? Okay, so that's the price divided by the earnings. Mm-hmm. Do you have an underlying belief that the denominator helps out and that earnings come on away from the single-digit or negative gloom? Yep, great question. First off, on consumer staples in particular, which Colgate is a member of, you know, staples uh, has been the most stable earner in the S&P 500 yep, for several years. Yeah, people love that right, right now. And we think Staples is a fantastic theme heading into the fall uh, for certain reasons because, remember, third week in September we start having these debates, and I think people are going to sit at home in front of the boob tube watching debates. So you want to own some consumer staple stock. With respect to the market overall, Tom, I think the biggest call of all over the next few years is that is that earnings and revenue growth is coming back. The multiple is going to be flattening if not going down. That's the big call. And nobody believes it because we've been so bearish on margins peaking and yields continue to head lower. I mean, people are not believing that. Well, they're not, they're not believing it. But like over the last 10 years, Colgate, just to pick on them again, 12% per year total return. Mm-hmm. Everyone out there, whether it's in New York or your Minneapolis, worldwide, is in a single-digit mindset on yep. assets. Brian Belsky's world isn't a single-digit world, no, is it? it? it isn't. And I think at the end of the day, you know, full disclosure, we run a mutual fund for Canadian investors, and we own Colgate. And part of the reason why we own Colgate is that people have forgotten that we have awesome companies in America and Canada. We've been so worried and excited to, to buy these sexy companies in China and emerging markets in Europe. Why not come back and buy the good old-fashioned toothpaste company because it's been but working? are they overpriced after the run-up? No, because if you go back to the 90s, because again, part of my premise is that I think we're heading back into an active investing environment, 80s and 90s, stock picking. If you look at the multiples back in the 90s, we're not there yet in consumer staples, we're not there in Colgate, number one. Number two, if you take a look at all conditions of the financial statements, cash flow, balance sheet, earnings, these companies are still relatively attractive and on an absolute basis attractive as well. I want to get in here, Apple. I was thunderstruck overnight on social media, in the printed newspapers, and in the sell-side reports, the 
absolute massive dichotomy of relatively gloomy articles versus relatively optimistic reports from your securities industry. <laughs> Why is that separation there? First of all, your producers have to find uh, thunderstruck by ECDC. That could be your theme the rest of the day with that respect to Apple. But um, here's, the, here's the issue. The, the, as I like to say, the 14-year-old portfolio managers that have replaced some of us with gray and receding, gray hair and receding hairlines have been using Apple as a, as a reduction, redemption tool in their portfolios because Apple and technology are the largest sector in the world. So they've been not watching the stock on a fundamental basis and looking at it as an index stock. And that's the problem with equity investing because we're so worried about being wrong. We don't want to be right. And so we want to hug the index. And what happens is when you start to see redemptions, they'd be using Apple. They miss this. They miss this because of the inbred negativity in our business. And it's a, it's a secular problem from a psychological basis on the institutional side. That's why wealth management and private clients are actually outperforming institutional accounts the last four or five years. On a quarterly basis and you know granted it's uneven free cash flow but the cash build of the beast with all they're doing here are the numbers folks these are quarters i usually quote annual but these are quarters 194 203 207 216 234 two they have a, they have a quarter of a trillion dollars laying around <laughs> is that good corporate stewardship well, listen, I think this whole market is going to be driven by the way to think about this is the redistribution of cash. We talk a lot in our country about the redistribution of wealth. Think about the redistribution yeah. of cash. And it seems to me like with that amount of cash flow, nobody believes that Apple can, can do that and, and continue to grow. And we think it's going to continue to grow the earnings and grow the dividend and, and be that continued cash cow. I mean, I, I look at this, folks, and we've been comparing and contrasting Colgate with Apple. Let me do the math here. I'm going to go to the Bloomberg terminal where we have a calculator on board. Because we're live on air, I'm going to round up ugly. So this is not exact. Apple's trading at 42% of the value of Colgate. Explain that. <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling to be able to Is Colgate that. overpriced or is Apple underpriced? Uh, probably it's it could be a, p a portion of both because people have been um, clamoring into the, the this consumer <coughs> space for perceived right. safety, right? And then this uh, overall just negativity regarding technology overall, but more specifically Apple. So it's a combination of both. Okay, but and, and folks, to work through that math, a PE of 11, you could argue about where that number is. Divided by the PE of 26 is how you get to it. Yeah, but the issue there, though, the issue there is that what do you believe the earnings? The earnings in Apple are too low, and, and, and maybe the earnings in Colgate oh, excuse are too me, low. Because CFA results were out yesterday, Belsky and I are disaggregating the ratio, which is what nobody does. They quote these ratios like gospel, and Brian, you and I know, a la DuPont ratios, you have to disaggregate down to the dynamics and partial derivatives of price and earnings. That's the numerator and the denominator. I mean, yeah. Isn't that awesome? Which one are you focused on? I'm like you. I'm focused on the denominator. Absolutely, positively. And I think nobody believes the denominator is going to go okay, up. And that's the key. Let's work up the income statement from in the P and the E. The E, go up the income statement to revenue. Revenue is made up of units and price. And the real fear of Apple, not to say you're an Apple expert, but the real fear is price erosion. And yet we really didn't see that in the gross margins yesterday. No, we didn't see that. And, and remember, too, that you know saturation rates in other markets aside from the U.S. are pretty low. I mean, uh, it, we're still seeing a lot more Samsung 
phones in China, for instance, mm -hmm. and we're not going to run the company and buy the company mm -hmm. because of China. We're going to buy the company because it is a dynamic, elite right. cash cow, and that's why we're going to I own saw it. the organic revenue growth on Coca-Cola. Tell me about Industrial America, GE, the UTX earnings yesterday. It's not a nominal GDP story, is it? They're doing better than that. They're doing better. And, you know, from our perspective, the domestic side of the industrial uh, space in America the, from the sector has been growing the best and the most consistently. GE, in particular, has kind of repositioned themselves to focus more on the industrial side of things. UTX has done a good job. Lockheed Martin's done a good job. So we're not talking about stocks that are, that are right. needing international growth, Tom, to continue to go higher with respect to their fundamentals. We've been talking about Apple. We've been talking about your optimism. I want to talk about how no one at all remembers what a bear market is or a correction. Can you imagine, Brian, the media sweat if we were to go down 10.3% over, say, a six-week period, four-week period? I think they'd love it because, uh, you know, the media in particular, of course, not the great people here at Bloomberg. Thank you. Uh, love to be the fear mongers. Uh, and as long as they're going to continue to doubt this bull market, the better. I think, you know, the more that we hear um, – positivity, so to speak, with respect to the market, the more you have to worry. So I would take the contrarian side of that. Yeah. So the more they sing the market's praises and start to believe their own <clears throat> you-know-what, I think the more likelihood we see a nice correction, and it'd be awesome but to see a 10% correction. Again, in honor of all the people who passed the CFA yesterday, for those of you that did not pass the CFA, John Tucker, like a 42% pass rate. It was like you in algebra in ninth grade. <laughs> <laughs> that would be 33. I, let me rephrase this, folks. The, the CFA exam is like a British exam. You don't fail. It's just that you didn't pass. And as Brian, as you know, you endure this. You right, you keep, endure. And you take you, it again. You take it again. <laughs> and it's not, a, for those of you on Global Wall Street going, oh my God, she flunked. It's okay. Back yep. up. Take the summer off. Take a deep breath. I, mean, I, I think take, you could take it back in the old days when we used to take it. it was, you can yeah. take it twice now. <laughs> you can take three times. <laughs> or four. I know someone who took seven years to get through it And uh, with a Good Morning Candace. Hope you're doing well. Brian Belsky, the mathematics <laughs> of when you and I went through this torture led to an 18% gener generalization as an equity bear market. With all of our distortions in our new finance structure, is there a different new bear market? Is it not negative 18%? Is it negative 14, negative 9? Is our new, do we have a new definition? This is a great question. It's my only good one. Too. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, I think um, any kind of downside, whether or not it's 5 to 8% or 12% or whatever, I think we, we become too consumed with, with being able to measure. I mean, let's be very clear. Nobody absolutely sells at the peak and nobody absolutely sells at the, at the trough or buys at the trough. So a lot of that analysis, I think, is great to look at, but to try to absolutely positively call and diagnose a correction you know, the easiest and best thing to always say is you never know when a correction comes until you least expect it. Everyone was looking for Brexit to make it. We were very, very steadfast when when we saw the weakness uh, caused by the Brexit that Friday. We said, buy, 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 buy. To create your shopping list. So we still think this is a buy-the-dip type market until proven otherwise. And I think at the end of the day, when we see longer-term inversion of the yield curve, 
That will be your signal to right. get out. And we are several months, if not quarters, away yeah. from that. Have to the CEOs that listen to us, and we thank all of you for uh, uh, giving us some of your valuable time every morning. Share buybacks. The wrap is you're buying at the top of the market. Shares are richly priced. You should not be buying back stock now. But yet it's part of the culture now. I mean, the CEO would be fired if he didn't buy back right. stock now. You know, remember, CEOs and CFOs are getting paid for the stock to go up. Uh, period. And should Mr. did Marissa Meyer deserve her compensation? <laughs> Come on. No, I'm not going to talk about that. But okay. <laughs> thank Die. you for trying to trap me. But think about this: interest rates are still at decade lows, so of course they're going to buy back stock. We need to see uh, a significant move in yield and tra- and and uh, the Fed notes in terms of of yields heading higher before the secular trend of buying back yeah. stock ends. Debt on the books. Uh, Ellen Zetner, Morgan Stanley, was talking about debt being a little rich. GE, granted, there's still some financial noise there, 39%. Debt, Apple, 12% debt. It's dirt cheap. Every Nothing. CFO has to go out and issue debt, right? They do. And at the, I mean, take a look at leverage ratios as well. I mean, back in the long time ago when I got in the business 26, 27 years ago, we did a lot of work uh, in analysis on debt to equity ratios. And, and for all intents and purposes, when you take a look at the 500 companies in the S&P 500 in aggregate, you don't have any debt to equity uh, ratios with respect to U.S. stocks. And I think at the end of the day, as you have these low interest rates, you're going to see continued borrowing out on the curb to buy back stock, period. They're just going to do it. And, and you mean, not that you go out to perpetuity, but you go out and you grab a coupon, say thank you. Does M&A help support the Brian Belsky optimism? It's got to because they can't capture. And we saw it with Coca-Cola this morning, 3% organic revenue growth. Nobody gets paid. It has under to. That. And at the at the end of the day, you know, bull, bull markets end when M&A is peaking and M&A is involved. With the, with the M&A portion uh, is when you see the majority of it come from stock. That's when you have to worry. The, the biggest deals that we're seeing and, and then the majority of deals overall, we're seeing more cash. And that's a very, very good thing. When you see, like we saw, 99,000, you've seen the majority of deals being done with stock, that's when you worry. What would Robert Farrell say? I mean, you know, he he invented uh, so much of the idea of strategy at Merrill Lynch years ago. Well, there's so many distortions out there now. It's not a it's certainly not a normal time, is it? It really isn't. You know, we had the great pleasure of working at Merrill uh, for a number of years. And, and in fact, my good friend uh, and former colleague David Rosenberg and I did a special meeting with clients uh, yesterday. You're friends with Rosenberg? I am. Oh, my I talk with him weekly. I just need to get my fix. I need my Rosie fix. Anyway, yeah. we had the great fortune to talk to some of our best clients at the BMO yesterday for lunch. And, and I think Bob Farrell, I know Bob Farrell came up several times. And one of the things that we talk about is... It's never different this time. Uh, and you, and when we try to think about and define stocks that it's different this time, I think you have to kind of be, you have to be very, very careful. Brian Belsky, thank you so much. BMO Capital Markets with your dose of equity optimism. Michael McKee is Senior Vice President Surveillance, Live or Dead Meeting. He's in Washington. Mike, are you in a Live or Dead radio studio at our wonderful new headquarters? We are in a live radio studio. Wonderful trip down in the Surveillance Gulf Stream. It's, it's a beautiful great, morning in Washington. Good. It's a great day to do nothing. 
uh, Janet and company will get in, get out, and right. probably not have a lot of influence on anybody. We could talk about doing nothing for four hours with Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock. It's one of those days, Jeff, where you almost pause within the strategy derby. And let me start with a really broad question, almost philosophical. Is there a theory operational right now? Is, is there something in yours or my textbooks, Michael's textbooks, that we're basing all this off of? Yes, there there is, and and it's it's a bit of uh, of the traditional theory in terms of stimulus measures, in terms of real interest rate levels, but but the theory is being pressed up against the conventional limits, and so the extension of uh, unconventional monetary policy. What we're going to talk about maybe a little bit uh, later today, tonight, tomorrow, uh, the BOJ and, yeah. and what its response is going to be. They're very much on the front ends of how you extend traditional monetary policy stimulus in a zero interest rate environment. And so the, the theory is still the same. You're trying to provide stimulus. You're trying to get real interest rates lower by boosting inflation in the real economy. It's just now your toolkit for boosting inflation is, is very uh, untraditional. So quantitative okay. easing. Fiscal monetary policy coordination. If we agree that this is reflation, is there any proof that an institution could reflate an economy? So there's um, not a lot of proof at this stage of the game. There, there's a lot of theory about what monetary policy can do in a fiat currency system. So when we, we, we talk about this idea of helicopter money, it goes back to Milton Friedman making a statement around why in a fiat currency system you shouldn't have the threats of deflation. Because at the end of the day, the monetary authorities can simply rain the money down from a helicopter. What we're discovering in the in the real world, to get to your question, is we've never really had that experiment in theory put into practice. And what we might be seeing, maybe not this week, maybe not this month, but we might eventually get to, in, in the case of Japan, and depending on, on outcomes in the rest of the developed market world, is trying to to put the theory of helicopter money, monetary policy, financing fiscal policy, so expansionary fiscal policy. That was the news item today in terms of the fiscal policy announced by Abe. Now the question is, does that get explicitly financed by the BOJ? Do they try to make this coordinated so that you try to break the psychology around the indebtedness? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of details around what makes helicopter money work, but one of the things that's key to it is that you have to believe that the expansion of government purchases will be financed by the central bank, and that financing will always remain outstanding. You'll never have to pay it back. The expansion of money in the system becomes permanent so that inflation psychology starts to kick in so that you can create inflation in the real world. Jeff, I want to expand on Carnegie Mellon and your work there within their master's program and a guy named Stephen Shreve, Steve Shreve, who's, who is he like the force, the founder of it all? Yeah, basically. He, uh, well, Steve Shreve around um, wrote uh, some of the most important background mathematic, right. ma- mathematical basis and theory for derivative finance. Put it on a on a solid mathematical foundation, and then and then founded a, a program at Carnegie Mellon that I attended called Computational Finance, which was really at the end of the eighties. Uh, early yeah. 90s, the flowering of, of derivative finance uh, on Wall Street. It's where we wore flowered shirts and big wide ties. <laughs> the heart of this matter is the bell curve, the Gaussian distribution. 
does Janet Yellen, Stan Fisher, and others, are they still working under the assumption of a core belief in the mathematics underpinning their economics? Do they believe in Brownian motion and other esoteric things all hinged upon that probability distribution we all know. So so the probability distribution is is one piece of a toolkit that finance people derivative is 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 more on the finance side what we talk about when we talk about the Fed and what the Fed looks at is more about on the economic side but what's key here is that Janet Yellen and today's Fed is is highly model driven in the sense that they're very much wedded to the economic models the specific economic model that the Fed uses is called the Furbis model mm-hmm. uh, the Furbis model is a is is, is, is not a derivative Brownian motion model. It, it is a statistical econometric model. It looks at data. It looks at historical data, historical relationships, economic right. relationships, and fits those relationships to the data to try to make predictions. Brilliantly stated. And Michael McKee, to go over to you in Washington, I would suggest that they take those econometric uh, data and then they set up the probability of certain outcomes. And all that's been shattered in the last seven years. Well, the outcomes haven't been as they thought they were. And to go back uh, to what you were talking about in terms of you know the, the ultimate theory and helicopter money and all that, the, the one fly in the ointment there is uh, the other theory called liquidity trap. The money is raining down, but people seem to be hoarding it rather than spending it. And if they don't spend, and this is what we're seeing in Japan, you get stagnation and deflation. That's right. And and part of what's difficult about the, these these model approaches is, is that you're in a, a region of the, the point in the economy. You're in a region in terms of financial market conditions with regards to the zero bound, where, where a lot of the experience and how the economy behaves may not follow the historical experience. And you don't have great historical experience at these levels to, to fit your models and to have good expectations or good beliefs that the models will work at these levels, low levels of inflation, threats of, uh, of, of deflation. Uh, and, and that's what's really challenging. Now, one really important point here to make is, is no policymaker is entirely wedded mechanistically to their models or, and, and to the output. These are tools that help to inform policymaking. What's interesting about particular eras of, of, of Fed stewardship is just what degree of reliance do they put on these models? Janet Yellen has, has had more reliance, more uh, has been more wedded to the 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 model output as as opposed to say a greenspan where there was where there was much more judgment applied to the conduct of monetary policy but in any era there's a balance between how much can you rely on on data and models and and how much do you rely on judgment? Uh, unfortunately, here in this environment, judgment it becomes a much more important part because we we don't know exactly how the economy is going to respond at at, at levels uh, again of inflation and interest rates where we, where we have no experience. Of. Well, here's the question that you know, a lot of people are asking in terms of monetary policy, and it's kind of the key question for you on a, a trading desk: is when do you admit the models don't work and try something else? <laughs> 
Well, it's it's getting to that point in the sense that we've long had this environment of unconventional monetary policy. So to the extent that the the models worked best when we're talking about being able to look at inputs like interest rates and real interest rates and nominal interest rates where where you don't have the issues around the zero bound, you've already gotten to that point. Now, you have shadow interest rate models that help you to deal with what what the zero bound uh, doesn't tell you what the effective negative nominal rate is. We, we now have experiments in actual negative nominal interest rates, and we have a big roaring debate about how low could nominal negative interest rates go. And what, one of the things we see is, is in particularly we saw this in the implementation of negative interest rates, again, uh, by the BOJ on January 29th, is that there were a lot of unexpected outcomes because, again, we're experimenting with policies where we don't know yeah. all of the costs and the benefits. But does Robert Schiller jump into this or Gary Becker or Thaler or Chicago? Do you have to not push aside but amend our certitude of our models because of the behavior world, taking negative rates and what negative rates do behaviorally on a system. Well, that's that's exactly the point. And, and again, we we saw it in the negative rate announcement. I mean, this is a little experiment for these for these theories where we we've never really seen a central bank be as aggressive with negative interest rates combined with quantitative easing as with the case in the Bank of Japan. And we had expectations. The Bank of Japan had expectations for what would happen, and what they expected to happen would was that the currency would weaken, the stock market would strengthen, longer term interest rates would fall, and all those things happened for about 20 minutes, and then they unwound. Now, the longer-term interest rates didn't, but the currency and the equity market reaction unwound, and, and there's a lot of debate about why that is, and there's a debate within the financial markets, debate within the policy circle, but one explanation for, for why the result was highly unanticipated was because there are these other aspects of central bank policy at the negative interest uh, with negative interest rates and that's the confidence channel the signaling effect and if you resort to much more surprising negative rates then perhaps you're signaling that your policy is more further exhausted than what the market was expecting mm-hmm. and that led to a negative confidence shock that's that's one way potentially of explaining the outcome but the point here is that when you when you're dealing with not simply having a conversation as we might have had a, a generation ago that, okay, are they going to cut 25? Are they going to cut yeah. 50? And, you know, the real rate is going from 2% to 1.5%. We have a good mm. sense of what a falling real interest rate means in the real economy. Here, we have a lot less certainty around what these policies will do and how financial markets and the economy responds to them. Well, given all that, uh, does the Fed have a credibility problem in explaining that to people. And how do they address that today if they do? They do. The Fed has to worry about the the confidence channel and the signaling effect. Uh, right now, the Fed is at a different point. You know, we're talking about the BOJ. We're talking about the news this morning in terms of the expansion of fiscal policy support because their economy r- requires that. The, the conversation this afternoon is going to be much more about what the Fed's communicating in terms of how do they try to move away from this era of unconventional policy and get us back to normalization. Is that going to be conveyed this afternoon? 
I think that we're going to see the Fed upgrade the assessment of the economy. The economy in the U.S. cases has done a little bit better, and so they'll reflect that. We'll also talk potentially, we'll see this or not, but over the course of the speeches, what the Fed is communicating is that we've survived the external shock of Brexit. And and with those two things, Brexit not being as negative and the economy in the U.S. looking a little bit more resilient, the conversation is going to steer back towards normalization. And as we're talking about more right. normalization, then the Fed avoids this BOJ problem of how do you deal with more unconventional okay. policy? This was fun. Jeff Ro- Jeffrey Rosenberg, thank you so much with BlackRock. Tom Barcelli has to figure this all out for RBC Capital Markets. He's their chief U.S. economist. Uh, Tom, durable goods orders, to the extent that they tell us anything, I suppose, are a little bit of good news for this quarter because for the first time in three months, the capital goods orders are higher, and that goes into GDP. Uh, the rest of it is it looks like typical volatility. Yeah, you know, the one thing I would say, though, is if you look at the the shipments numbers, which is really what's going to get baked into the current quarter, that was actually down. Um, again, core shipments was down like four-tenths. So, uh, yeah, orders were a little bit better, and that's sort of a nice thing for the out quarter. Uh, but in the current quarter, you're still looking at weaknesses. So for us, net-net, uh, this really confirms that you're, you're looking at uh, what will uh, wind up being the, the second straight or actually the third straight decline, quarterly decline in CapEx. Um, we have baked in a, a 1% decline for the, for the quarter in total. Um, you are focused on labor, and you've done a great job, Tom, of, of – doing the dynamics of labor and wage dynamics. What is the wage picture that Chair Yellen looks at today? Yeah, I mean, look, I think as, you know, we sort of gear up for, for what the Fed is going to have to say and, and, and do today. Uh, I don't think there's any question that they're going to have to change their assessment of the, the, the labor backdrop. Again, as I think is widely appreciated, the, the Fed really dinged their assessment in the last go-around, uh, you know, basically saying job gains have diminished, which for the Fed is, uh, you know, sort of colorful language. Uh, that's going to have to be totally unwound now uh, in the wake of uh, last month's uh, payroll report. Uh, which showed that the previous month's payroll report uh, really was an aberration. So, uh, yeah, I think they're going to have to um, turn a bit more positive in that regard. The wage profile, uh, Tom, as you alluded to, it certainly remains very constructive uh, overall. Uh, And, and again, how do we define constructive? Uh, Enough to basically continue to drive consumer spending to about a Mm 2.5% clip. But, but again, overall, net-net, the the labor backdrop remains in A-OK shape. Well, the question before the committee today is really, you know, with the economic numbers for the most part coming in better than expected and jobs up in June, how fast does that move the inflation needle? Uh, Do you have any any indication that it's going to go faster? So what I would say is I don't think that it moves the sort of the key metrics with, that the Fed looks at, right? So, uh, you know, headline inflation is certainly going to remain uh, compressed. That, that That's obviously an energy story. Core measures of inflation have actually have been a, a tiny bit on the perky side, and I stress a tiny bit on the perky side. Uh, you know, we expect that that will continue to drift toward 2% by, by the end of the year. Uh, you know, one measure of inflation that we'd love to look at um, that, that's definitely an off-the-beaten pathway of thinking about uh, inflation is core services inflation. Um, core services inflation, we, we like to, which, by the way, is 60% of the weight of inflation. We'd like to look at that because that really gives you a really solid sense for uh, you know, sort of 
U.S. Um, you know internal uh, underlying demands uh, in the United States. I mean, I think most people appreciate we are a service-dominated economy. So what's happening in in, in the core services space, I, I think, is particularly uh, important. And what we see there is that that metric, again, 60% of the weight of inflation, is running at a 3.2% pace. Yeah. So there is inflation out there okay, if, if you sort of know where to look for it. But that's not something the Fed is paying attention to, right? I mean, they're looking at sort of the headline metrics, and we think that those will remain decidedly on the soft side. And, and the chart, and I'll feature this on Bloomberg Television tomorrow, folks. I'm going to put it out on Bloomberg Radio Plus right now. But, but Tom, this is the heart of the matter. The many guests we interview who say yep. the Fed has all the time in the world, they should not raise, et cetera. And then we've got a guy like you who's fair and balanced, and we got other people saying, what are they waiting for with undue hysterics? That core services metric that all of us are living is center tendency back 15 years. Yeah. What are they waiting for? Yeah, I mean, Tom, uh, you know, again, you and I have talked about this uh, many, many times. Uh, th that has been our stance. Uh, you know, if, if it was up to us, Fed funds would be materially higher than they are right now, right? The process probably should have started uh, at, at least a year ago. Uh, you know, you should already have a one handle on, on Fed funds, we, we, we would argue. Now, that's in sort of the, uh, you know, sort of the old way of thinking. Um, this, uh, and again, this is an idea that we've written about many times now. This is not your, your classic dual mandate Fed. Right, uh, you know, where yeah. jobs and inflation are, are really the, the sort of the primary drivers uh, of of what they're going to do or not do with uh, the, the policy rate. Instead, this is you know we would submit a, a, a triple mandate Fed, where the third mandate are global developments, and that is really um, doing most <clears throat> of the driving at this point. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, uh, while we think from a fundamental perspective Fed funds should be higher, right. the practical application of this is if the Fed is indeed worried about global development. Uh, and and, and right. don't get me wrong, uh, there are certainly things to worry about. But if that's going to be their, their, their primary focus, then we think right. that Fed funds remains compressed for the foreseeable future. Tom Purcelli with us, RBC Capital Markets. A few more minutes uh, with him this morning. We mentioned durable goods earlier, uh, uh, Tom, which goes over to investment. It's a smaller part of our economy, but the books tell us it's the, it's the marginal change. It's the thing that makes cycles happen. Where's the vector of investment right now? Yeah, it, it's rather unfortunate. Uh, the, the last few quarters, we've really seen um, actually flat-out declines uh, from a, a CapEx perspective. You know, we do think once you get beyond uh, this quarter, you know, things will, will, will sort of bounce from here. But we're talking about an extremely marginal bounce. You know, we're just looking for a, a few percentage points uh, from a CapEx perspective over the second half of the year. So if you think about it in terms of its, its ad from a growth perspective, even if we're right – uh, and you do get those uh, sort of a 3% gain in the second half. For the full year, CapEx would actually be uh, um, net neutral from a, a GDP perspective. So we're not really looking for uh, much in the way of CapEx. <sighs> I mean, if you want to hang your hat on something positive, you know, you can look at ISM new orders. Uh, you know, it, it, it's been performing pretty well. Uh, we obviously went through a soft patch uh, in the early part uh, of the year, even uh, sort of into the end of last year. Since that point, though, it, it, it's really been hovering uh, in, in pretty uh, expansionary territory. So it does suggest that we're right to think you're going to see some um, uh, acceleration in, in H2. But the reality is it's, this is not a, a sector that you can actually expect to see much uh, in the way of uh, bang for the buck. Uh, we think it's going to remain uh, pretty suppressed. We get GDP on Friday, and we get 
revisions yeah. for the past three years. Last year, growth for the preceding three years revised down a little bit. How bad is the seasonal problem, and how much of what may be going on with CapEx is, is re- and, and the ups and downs of growth in this economy is related to that? I don't think anyone should delude themselves at this point, right? I mean, most people have acknowledged that there is some seasonal adjustment problem, particularly in the first quarter of the year. Uh, You know, Q1 was 1% uh, uh, this year. Uh, It's been uh, exceedingly weak really every single first quarter for the last several years. So there is some seasonal adjustment problem. Um, But but again, that that, that point, and by the way, uh, the the Fed has acknowledged this, the BEA, which are the folks that pull that report together, they've acknowledged this. The, The best way we think to really understand what the trajectory is from an underlying economic perspective is to simply look at consumer spending. Um, and consumer spending, particularly with regard to the fundamentals that we highlighted in the first segment, right, wages remain you know, fairly constructive. Job growth, we think, will uh, continue to push ahead, uh, although certainly uh, gains are slowing there. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, um, fundamentals in the consumer space uh, remain pretty sound. So if it's true um, that that's a fair way of thinking about it, and we certainly think it is since the consumer makes up about 70% of output, uh, then, you know, you're looking at a, a 2 to 2.5% two economy. And, and by the way, um, and Tom knows this well, uh, I've been talking to him about this for years now, That that's pretty much what we've been saying for a really long time now. So nothing has changed with regard to overall U.S. economic fundamentals. Um, although right. I, I, would, I, I would caution um, that in the years to come, growth rates are absolutely going to be slowing down. And, and that's a demographic problem, which, you know, we probably don't have enough time to talk about at this you know, point. The but, Fed, we don't. Yeah. We have one more question. We've got to let you go to your RBC Capital Day. I'm sorry it's two Americas. Is all we're talking about, Tom Purcelli, is Chair Yellen has to manage a bank for the politics of two Americas rather than what the aggregate good numbers say? Yeah, and you know, if that's true, that's a really unfortunate set of circumstances for for the Fed. Uh, look, Bernanke was pretty clear on this, right? He basically said that one of the reasons why the Fed, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but he basically said one of the reasons why we're keeping rates um, so low is basically because fiscal policy is offline. Um, and 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 I do think that that is absolutely something that has weighed uh, on this Fed, and that's been true for for a number of years now. Uh, and I think that's just one of the un, unfortunate uh, set of circumstances uh, uh, that that you. Yeah. Sort of pinpoint coming out of Washington. Tom, thank you so much. Tom Purcelli with ABC Capital Markets. Walter Pisick joins us, Michael, uh, with BTIG on Apple. Walter, I have never seen the disparity between media articles and sell side like I saw yesterday afternoon and into the morning on Apple Inc. I believe it used to be called Apple Computer. The articles are not woe is me, but paragraph after paragraph of dynamics that cause great concern. And most of the sell side is saying, shut up and buy the shares. Why is that disparity exist? Uh, I mean, that, that disparity happened in prior quarters when, you know, they were growing um, and putting up good overall growth, and everyone in the press would say, "Oh, these things are great." But it's you know, as you know, the market's about forward-looking, and and whether the company was heading into a decline in earnings or revenue or a growth. And I think the issue now is you have a difficult um, June quarter behind. Um, you have clarity on the September quarter based, quarter based on the guide, so you can stop worrying about these kind of trough quarters um, and start thinking about 
some of the products that could return the company to growth. And that's what's going to make the stock, no matter how much it's up today, what's really going to make the stock work or not work going forward is if they can return to growth in that December quarter. That's largely driven by what this new product's going to look like and what other products they can come up with with this massive R&D budget, right? I mean, they're spending $10 billion a year now. That's a, that's a double um, from what they were spending only three years ago. It's 6% of their revenue, a new, uh, a new record level of, of R&D investment. So you would hope that if they're spending that amount of money, um, they've got some other products that, um, that they haven't yet announced or launched um, that should hit the, and help with revenue. Well, that's what everybody keeps expecting, though. They've been saying that for years and years, and analysts have been expecting something for years and years. And other than the Apple Watch, we haven't gotten anything. Is there any any reason to believe that any new product is coming soon? I think you're right to be skeptical, which is why the stock has been down and, and where the valuation is where it is. And, and you're right. I mean, the, the one new product uh, undercooked it that's come out is the watch. And even though it did generate or has been generating billions of revenue and, and profit, um, it's perceived as, as a disappointment. But, um, again, that came even before um, the, the R&D ramped up to these levels. So, And there's a lot of pain points that exist in our life, right? I mean, the car and some of the technology that's in the car is, is kind of dated relative to what we carry around in our hands every day. Um, your living room, as far as these set-top boxes, which are terrible, as far as discovery and how, and how, as Rich Greenfield will talk about, people are changing and how they how they view um, how view content. So there's there's plenty of opportunities. There's lots of investment. Now we just have to wait for something to actually get delivered to us. Well, you raise an interesting point when you talk about the cars and it. It gets to the psychology of investing in Apple. This has been a stock people invest in quarter to quarter, uh, and based on the the sales. Uh, reports for the the various products, particularly the iPhone. Do you start thinking about Apple as a long-term value uh, investment that you uh, just buy and hold because you expect in a couple of years they're going to have some sort of automotive product that will blow the doors off to mix the metaphor? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, I've lived through Motorola. I've lived through Nokia. I've lived through Lucent. I mean, there's no long-term in tech. Right, things change. Different companies emerge. Um, they are in a very strong position, as far as not only the brand but the products that they're delivering in the market. They're spending, but it's a, it's a fair point that you're making, which is they have to actually deliver something into the market. So what we have today with the stock up, whatever percentage is going to be up, is okay. We feel we have more time, right? This quarter was okay. We don't have to panic yet. Next quarter, the guidance looks like it's okay. You know, maybe that the iPhone 7, based on, on upgrade rates, can give us some minimal level of growth. So the company has effectively bought time with investors to put that $10 billion a year of, of R&D investment um, to good use to deliver products to the market. But again, I, I, look, I remember back in the 90s, Lucent would talk about spending 1% of their R&D on these LEAP projects, and, and they would try and come with, with products in the market that – that never ultimately resonated with their their customers. So it, it's certainly a risk, but one that I think is, is discounted in the stock today. Yeah, I, I look, Walter, at, at Apple and the, the valuation, and I go back to, I, I just have to go back to use of cash. Is this a company still in transition to a blue chip ethos, or is it just the fortunate tech company with a quarter of a trillion dollars of cash laying around? It's been a you know, whatever, eight-year fortune, yeah. <laughs> I guess. You know better um, than me. 
Right. And, and look, the, the gross margins on this thing are phenomenal, and, and they, they appeal to wealthy consumers around the world. This is not a broad market product. If there was a change that put the gross margins at risk, but you basically have people that can afford iPhones and how often they're going to upgrade them, and that's going to sustain this free cash flow. Now, they're spending, they spent $10 billion on a share repurchase during the quarter. That was up from seven. Uh, last quarter. So they're, that's helping with, with to deliver earnings growth, which should help valuation. But it's not like they're not looking for other areas of growth. Like I said, they're also spending $10 billion uh, per year uh, on R&D. Now, some would argue that they should be more aggressive in acquisitions, and that can help to, to launch them um, into new product categories. They do a couple a quarter. They're, they're relatively small. You know, so that could be a different area where they use that large cash balance um, that they have mm. to make one of these acquisitions. We um, await... We await. Walter, thank you so much. Walter Pisek with BTIG. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.